All right, welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about the trucker blockade in Ottawa now. Day 11 of the protests, the city of Ottawa has declared a state of emergency. There was an emergency debate in the House of Commons. How is this going to be resolved? My next guest writes on Twitter, there's a better way forward for this for Canada. Respect, dialogue, understanding, empathy. That is the Canadian way. My guest is Kevin Vickers, the former Sergeant at Arms in the House of Commons. You will certainly remember how he took down the parliamentary shooter back in 2014. He was awarded the Star of Courage uh, for the events of that day. He's the former leader of the New Brunswick Liberal Party, Canada's former ambassador to Ireland. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mr. Vickers, thanks for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. Okay, your thoughts on the on the trucker blockade in Ottawa and a way forward here. You think the way out of this is negotiation? Is that right? Yeah, Mike, I've been uh, you know uh, encouraging everybody to buy into the Canadian way, and that's and these types of uh, public order, uh, civil disobedience things is de-escalation and finding a peaceful resolution. And I always maintain we can do that by many tools in the toolbox, communication, understanding, facilitation, and of course enforcement is a part of that strategy as well, but it's getting people to talk and just taking the steam out of the balloon. Right, so do you believe that the Prime Minister or representatives of his government should be sitting down with these truckers and talking directly to them? Absolutely, I believe you know a representative of the government uh, has to be there, the police have a role in civil disobedience matters, but so does the government. Uh, the police have very little to do with uh, COVID mandates and restrictions, but the government does. And I think the bright thing about this, Mike, as you look over across uh, the United Kingdom has just dropped all its uh, restrictions and mandates, Ireland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, um, and some of our provinces already have indicated they're going that way. So Within a month, uh, two months, um, the protesters really, uh, as far as I can see, will have little to protest about because we're already going to go on that path. Uh, Dr. Tam just last week mentioned that it's time for Canada to review its uh, mandate and restriction things. So I think there's a real opportunity here. We just, people put pride aside and uh, sit down and, as I mentioned before, the Canadian way. Well, I sure hope you're right about the, the sort of the long-term view you just outlined there. Let me ask you, though, about the stated goals and aims of the leaders of this trucker blockade in Ottawa. They had put out a, like a manifesto earlier saying that they effectively wanted to replace the government with some kind of committee that was appointed by the governor general. I mean, it's just kind of crazy, crazy talk. Well, you know, and as incident commander at Burnt Church, where we had warriors across the Canada talking about shutting down ports of entry, blocking bridges, railroad lines, power lines, and Canada. One of their first things they wanted uh, me to do was bring Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth, uh, to the negotiating table. So these things, Michael, I think are best just kind of nudged aside and get at the issue of the hand. And this time it's uh, restrictions and uh, passports and these types of things. And I think there's some wiggle room here that we could find uh, in the interest of Canadians. I've seen a brilliant young member of Parliament this morning from uh, Quebec who very well articulated uh, it's time for the country to unite. Uh, it's time for division to be set right. aside and us to come together as Canadians. Are you speaking? The Canadian way. I believe you're speaking. I believe you're speaking about Liberal MP Joel Lightbound 
who today was saying that he's he's not comfortable with some of the divisive politics going on here with his own government. Let me play that clip here for you, Kevin, get your thoughts. Liberal MP Joel Lightbound here. There are a few of them. I wouldn't say that they necessarily all agree with what I'm suggesting moving forward, but uh, uh, there are, are quite a few who share the discomfort with the kind of divisive politics uh, and who think that we need to take a more positive approach. Okay, Liberal MP there criticizing divisive politics. We just have one minute left. Do you, do you think that's been happening, that's been divisive, the approach of the Prime Minister? Well, I think, you know, the you know before the election, it was, you know, everybody, if you wanted to get a vaccine, there would be one available. And after the election, it's, it's turned that it, uh, kind of a we and way, a we and they type of uh, scenario, but I think given the fact that Canada is one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, and as they say, we see other countries, the UK, Ireland, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, uh, lifting restrictions and passports, uh, Canada is in very good position to uh, okay. follow that suit. And so I think there's some good ground here to show respect okay. and bring the truckers together and the protesters together and get everybody around the table and uh, as I mentioned before, the Canadian way, respecting Thank one another, respecting the dignity of one another, and coming to a, a good old Canadian compromise. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Great, Michael, and everybody in Vancouver. Have a great day. We start closer to home with the deadly epidemic of toxic drug overdoses. It was the highest number ever for toxic drug deaths in our province. Have a listen to this report now from Global News. A worse place than we have ever been in. That's the message from B.C.'s chief coroner after the drug overdose numbers from 2021 were released. More than 2,200 people in B.C. died of drug poisoning last year. According to the B.C. coroner's office, that's a 26% increase from the previous year and represents an average of six deaths per day to drug toxicity. November and December of 2021 were the two highest months ever for drug-related deaths in BC. Advocacy groups are calling on the province to take more action for a safer supply distribution. 2021 was the sixth year of the public health emergency and it is with tremendous sadness that I report that our province is in a worse place than it has ever been in this drug toxicity crisis. All right, let's discuss now. We've got a great panel on this to discuss. Keir McDonald is here, CEO of the Phoenix Drug and Alcohol Recovery and Education Society. Keir, thank you for coming on today. Good morning. Also, happy to welcome back Guy Feli Chella. He's a harm reduction and recovery advocate. He's a recovered drug addict himself. Hey, Guy. Hey, Mike. Hey, Guy, thank you for both of you for being here. Guy, let me go to you first. When you hear these numbers, twenty over 2,200 deaths in a single year, six a day, 26% increase in one year. How do the, What do those numbers mean to you? What goes through your mind when you hear that? Well, I mean, you know, just, you know, with the lack of response, what you what you see is going to happen, you know, and if we... You know, it's not, it's shocking, but not shocking. Uh, you know, we've known for, uh, since 2016 that, you know, month after month, the drug supply, uh, continues to get increasingly worse. And so if you can't remove people, um, from that supply, then that's just the reality of what's going to happen. It will go even higher if yeah. we don't actually do something. 
Okay, yeah, one of the things that jumped out in that me in that report, I'll go to Kier McDonald for this, Kier. The, the numbers, they're surging at the end of last year. So you heard in that report, the, in November and December, those were the highest months ever. So it, it appeared that we have a surge in deaths right at the end of the year, which could indicate this could get even worse going forward. But your thoughts? Yeah, guys, spot on. I mean, we, we were talking, you know, a year ago, we were seeing four a day, then it moved to six a day. And as you said, through November, December, we're at seven a day. And, and quite frankly, it will go up because we are dealing with an extremely toxic supply. Um, and, and, and unless something changes in terms of access to a safer supply, um, that, that trajectory will just keep going up. Okay, Guy, we're going to talk later in the show about a, a huge fentanyl drug bust announced earlier this week, $30 million worth of fentanyl seized by the cops this week, one of the biggest busts ever. And I mean, this is what we're talking about. It's fentanyl. Is it fentanyl that's killing people? Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's fentanyl, but it's the, you know, contaminants that go with it. It's just, you know, uh, it's just what they're, what organized crime does is they make drugs that, uh, you know, and, make it highly addictive and more toxic. And when you continue to take drugs off the street, then they continue to even get more toxic. Um, new batches come in sometimes maybe, uh, by suppliers that don't actually really know what they're doing, uh, which can make it even worse. Um, unless the government actually comes right out and regulates heroin and actually gives people access to it. Uh, you, you, you know, you're going to you're going to have people not being able to be removed from that market. And and you know what? Listen, we've been tr- fighting the war on drugs uh, for decades and it's it's not working. You can't keep drugs out of the country. And so one bust you do for 30 million and then how many billions got in. So, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Kier, let me ask you about the, the point that Guy just made there about what's known as safe supply. And we saw an event yesterday in vancouver where safe supply drug advocates actually had an event where they distributed free heroin cocaine and meth they had a meeting where they just handed out free drugs which they said had been safe and and tested the pharmaceutical quality heroin cocaine and meth can you comment on that like for people who are listening and saying like this just sounds insane to to talk about a drug overdose death fatality crisis, and the answer is to give people free drugs. Can you, what is your your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think the actions you're seeing is 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 a response to what people are feeling is inaction, and you know people are starting to take it into their own hands to say these are the types of measures we need to do to actually have some impact. I mean. I believe that reducing harm for people who use drugs is the right thing to do and, and really a regulated supply of safer alternatives to those toxic street drugs will save lives. Um, I guess my point would be also that you know it really is important that that is one measure of a broader range of response to this crisis and it's drugs that are killing people and, sh- and that has to be the first priority to address that supply. Speaking about the record overdose death rate in British Columbia with my guest, Kira McDonald, Guy Felicellic. Guy, what do you say to people when they hear that, that the answer here is safe supply? We give people safe drugs who, who would argue, well, you're just facilitating uh, drug use and maybe you get even more people addicted if you, if you do that. Like, what do you say to that? Yeah, the data doesn't support that. You know, I, I, I think they're, you know, when you 
when you, people have, listen, it doesn't have to be free. Either. I mean, you know, like if you regulate something like, you know, you can't assume that everybody that walks into a liquor store has a problem with alcohol. Uh, so you can't assume that everybody that uses drugs um, has an issue with uh, or a substance use disorder. So, the, I mean, there's tens of thousands of people who use drugs that do not have a substance use disorder, and they're at risk of death. Um, so we need the same. We've done regulation. We know what it looks like. If you look back at alcohol prohibition, you know, like you're not seeing, uh, you know, gangs uh, fighting over and killing each other uh, over alcohol distribution. Uh, distributing alcohol so uh, we could do the same thing with you know uh the with either heroin or you know um other substances just to to make it safer and you know compete against organized crime that's what you need to do because we're not right now all right welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the record toxic drug deaths last year over 2200 deaths in 2021 it's the highest ever 26 percent increase in one year it's an average of six toxic drug deaths a day my guests are Kier mcdonald phoenix drug and alcohol recovery and education society guy felicella he's a harm reduction and recovery advocate hey hey Kier, we we talked before the break about this event that happened in vancouver yesterday where uh drug use advocates uh distributed free cocaine meth and heroin at an event let me play a clip here for you from that event uh, you'll hear a speaker here at this news conference arguing for a safe supply to give give people safe, clean drugs. Have a listen to this and I'll get your thoughts. Drugs that people choose to consume are killing them because they do not know what is in them. That is what is driving this number. And we are demanding that the government dismantles the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, grants Dolph, the Drug User Liberation Front, our request for a Section 56 exemption to be able to run compassion clubs that distribute cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine in tested, clean, and, uh, you know, predictable compounds. Okay, here, when people hear that, and they say, okay, this is the answer, we need to give people drugs meth heroin cocaine that are tested what is it is it a case of like people are going to do the drugs anyway so we should give them drugs that are not poison effectively your thoughts yeah just 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 building upon guys comments i mean that's exactly it i mean people people are using substances whether whether we like it or not you know we we use tobacco we use alcohol um, we now use cannabis. You know, these are regulated, legalized substances, and that is the difference. I mean, what the protests are about is really looking at the BC model, and what they have done is to expand access to prescribed safer supply, which is really putting a limit on and a gateway through having enough prescribers, physicians, um, and quite frankly, to have people that are diagnosed with a substance use disorder to be able to access a clean, safe supply of drugs that doesn't help the needs of all of those other people that may be using for recreational purposes or, or quite frankly, that don't have any substance dependency. Um, so I think that's the frustration that we are totally medicalizing the response, which is only, which will only meet half of the problem. Okay, Guy, let me ask you about, I mean, safe drugs or safe supply is one thing. I'm not sure there is really a safe drug when we're talking about these drugs, but, you know, when we're talking, safe supply is one thing. 
But then there's recovery. There's treatment, right? And I know both of you guys are advocates for that. And Guy, you're, you're a living example of how recovery is possible. What about that part of this, this equation? Like, I often think of a parent who may have a child who gets into drugs and is addicted. Do they want to hear, it, it's okay, we're going to give, we're going to give your child lab-tested heroin, or we're going to give your child a bed in a recovery unit and get them clean? What are your thoughts? Well, I think, you know, here it is. The toxic drug supply right now is creating more addiction in itself because drugs are supremely addictive with benzos and fentanyl. Now, if somebody does become addicted to those substances, what we need to do is actually fix uh, the the treatment industry where people can have access to that as well. So it's kind of like, listen, if we're going to give you safe drugs and you do develop an addiction, there, there needs to be that follow-through support for people to access treatment and service. It's the same thing for people that drink alcohol. If they become addicted to alcohol, they can yeah. get into treatment. The problem is with getting into a treatment industry is that when you have benzos in your system to access detox, then to wait for a bed in treatment, it's too long. The opportunity is gone from the person. And then we expect them to white knuckle it while they're waiting. And that just doesn't work either. So we need to have a full continuum and a full spectrum of care to support people. Karen McDonald, your thoughts on that? Yeah, Guy and I are in total agreement on that one. I mean, it's all about having that continuum of care and that range of responses. You know, safe supply, you know, again, we're not going to provide free drugs our way out of this. You know, we have people with substance dependency. We have people that are needing help. And quite frankly, people using drugs right now that want help that just cannot access that help. So there's these barriers and system confusions. And again, a lot of work, a lot of discussions are taking place to improve that system of care, but it is so slow. Um, We aren't seeing enough measures coming online to, you know, rapidly increase access to detox, to streamline access from detox to treatment services, and then not to drop people at the end of their treatment, which ultimately get released maybe even back to, you know, homelessness at the end of the day. So these are all problems that we're needing to address right now just to provide a you know a continuum of care for people that are using substances hey guy can you comment a little bit about treatment and recovery and the possibility of that because you've gone through a journey that you've shared very publicly on this show in the past and when i was watching that news conference there yesterday where they were people were giving out free cocaine and heroin you know the people i saw there they didn't look like they were anywhere close to being candidates for treatment you know people look desperate but, you know, can people get treated? Can they get off these drugs? Your thoughts? Oh, 100%. I, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm living proof, and I know many others are living proof. Listen, it, it's just, it, it, it often, uh, it just takes time. You know, a lot of things change in people's lives uh, while they're using substances either. Listen, using drugs in itself, if you're just a drug user with no addiction or a substance use disorder, I, I mean, you can live life and you're functioning. That's fine. But if you're... have a substance use disorder that's painful like i mean i lived a painful life for a long time and you know i needed support but there was there was support and i can guarantee you that uh dolph or any organization any drug user group if somebody came to them and wanted record uh support to go to treatment or recovery they would support them there i know that for a fact and that's the that's the they everybody is 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 wanting this nobody wants people to die anymore all right Guys, thank you for a good discussion. I appreciate it. It's an issue we continue to follow closely. To those who have chosen to take a city of one million people hostage, 
to those trying to force a political agenda through disruption, intimidation, and chaos. Let me be as clear as I can. There will be consequences for these actions, and they will be severe. Okay, that's Ontario Premier Doug Ford speaking this morning with a blunt warning to the truck blockaders in Ottawa. That is on day 14 of the truck blockade in the nation's capital and also to the truck occupation of the Ambassador Bridge linking Windsor, Ontario and Detroit. You hear the Ontario Premier talking very tough there this morning, threatening fines and jail time. We're at a major turning point in this crisis right now. The pressure is building on all levels of government, especially after the blockade of that key Canada-U.S. border crisis. Let's discuss now with my guest, Shane Wark. Shane is with the Unifor Union uh, they represent 20,000 auto workers in Ontario, and he is the assistant to the national president of the union. I'm pleased to welcome him. Shane, thank you for coming on today. Yes, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having hey, me today. Shane, Shane, what can you tell us about the situation in Ontario right now with that bridge shut down and the impact it's had on, on the members of your union, the auto workers there? Well, it, we've had over the past few days since the uh, blockade started on the bridge, we've had anywhere between... Uh, depending on the day, eight to 12,000 of our members in the Detroit three assembly plants, either sent home uh, on reduced hours or having production interrupted. Uh, So a lot of temporary layoffs essentially is what what's happening here. So reduced hours and reduced income. uh, And that's starting to trickle down into our auto parts uh, members. And so you're aware we represent about 20,000 in the auto parts sector as well. Yeah, and for people who are sent home, are they still getting paid? Are they laid off? I mean, what's the situation there? Uh, some, none of them that are get get sent home get their full pay. Uh, depending yeah. on their seniority, some of them will get partial pay, and others, if they don't uh, qualify, uh, don't get any pay other than for the few hours that they they worked. What are you hearing from the members of your union that are being impacted by this blockade? What are they telling you? They're telling me that they want the blockade uh, to end because they, like workers in many sectors, they have had a very difficult last two years in the auto industry. The pandemic hit, that caused layoffs. Then uh, there's been an ongoing shortage of semiconductors, which has caused enormous layoffs in the auto sector right, right around the globe, but in significant here in Ontario. So they've had two two years worth of layoffs, reduced hours, reduced income for them and their family. They're they're wanting to work whatever hours the the company can schedule. And so when we have uh, a bridge blockade that's preventing them from getting the parts and preventing them from doing their jobs, they're getting they're getting pretty frustrated at this point. This has been described as a trucker blockade, and I heard. One thing I thought was interesting that Doug Ford said this morning is that he doesn't really think it's truckers. There are other people involved who are not truckers in, in this dispute and in this blockade. That there, there are some truck, obviously trucks blocking that bridge, but there are other types of vehicles there as well. I mean, like as a union guy who represents workers who are affected by this, I mean, how do you... How do you analyze this blockade? I mean, do you see it as kind of a worker uprising? I mean, I'm pro- probably sure you don't, but how do you characterize it? No, I, I definitely yeah. don't see it as a worker uprising. And 
we represent a lot of workers in the transportation sector. Uh, and I can tell you, and even in, consistent in the media here in Ontario, we're hearing from a lot of truckers that they want to do their job as well. I mean, they, they want to be driving up and down the highway. They want to be driving across the Ambassador Bridge, delivering components so that they too can get paid, so that they can provide their, for their family. Uh, so the idea that that is a workers' protest, I, I don't see it as a workers' protest because workers aren't going to take an action that puts tens of thousands of other workers uh, on layoff. Let me play another clip here for you from the Ontario Premier speaking a short time ago here, saying it's time for these blockades to come down, threatening enforcement action here. Here is Doug Ford laying out the penalties here for non-compliance. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. Fines for non-compliance will be severe, with a maximum penalty of $100,000 and up to a year imprisonment. We will also provide additional authority to consider taking away the personal and commercial licenses of anyone who doesn't comply with these orders. What, what, Shane, what do you think of the actions that were announced by the Ontario Premier there this morning? In short, I think they were inevitable because, you know, I, I don't think you can keep one of the busiest international borders shut down for day after day after day and not expect uh, a government to step up and take uh, pretty severe pretty severe steps, which it sounds like the Ontario government's doing today. Yeah, I mean, he did take some tough questions there this morning about how long it's taken to take action on this. I mean, the Ontario one's dragged on for two weeks now. This bridge has been shut down for several days. He even, a reporter even asked him this morning, we had video of you at your cottage on the weekend riding your snowmobile. And he did say, yeah, I was out snowmobiling on Saturday, but I was in constant contact with officials here on this crisis. I mean, are you guys at, at the union, the auto workers union, are you satisfied with how, how fast the response has been to this? Well, I think, I think they could have uh, responded quicker. No, no question about it, given what's at stake here. Again, you're talking uh, tens of thousands of workers getting uh, impacted by layoffs as a result of, of that blockade. I, I think they do consider the fact, like we all want to make sure, that it de-escalates in a non-violent manner, and maybe that's what they were were analyzing. But at some point, when you've got that much disruption, uh, they, any government is going to act, and and that's what they're doing today. And we'll see we'll see where it goes um, from here. Okay, speaking to Shane Wark from the Unifor Union, they represent twenty thousand workers in the auto worker uh, the auto sector in Ontario. A lot of them have been sent home. Uh, because of the blockade of that bridge there in Ontario. You know, for people who maybe don't understand how this auto industry works, it, it operates on a kind of what they call a just-in-time delivery model of these parts to assemble these cars, right? So, like, if you shut down a supply chain like this for even a couple of days, that just snarls the... it, it stops the factory line, correct? That's that's correct. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. they they operate you know, pretty much hand to mouth now because companies want to reduce their their inventory costs. So they have this just in time model. And you can see the the effects of that, that almost immediately when the bridge was blockaded and shipments start or stopped coming across the border, our plants were affected almost immediately. And so that's the that's the end result of of having uh, that type of system. So the the blockade, yeah, it's as soon as it went up almost immediately, 
in some of our plants, it started to have an impact. Like how many how many workers are we talking about here are impacted by this? Well, in the auto industry in Ontario, direct jobs, you've got about 130,000. Uh, Unifor represents 20,000 in the Detroit 3. We represent another 20,000 in the auto parts sector. Uh, so... You know, when I say tens of thousands get impacted, that's accurate. And and when I, if you extend that to the non-union facilities that we have here in Ontario, like Honda and Toyota, I know the Toyota plant uh, was shut down for several days as well. So yeah, it's it's a lot of workers that are being laid off on a temporary basis or on reduced hours and therefore reduced income. And uh, again, having two years of this, this is just not. That's not what they need right now. So yeah, and, the and when, pe- is- when people think of like an auto assembly plant, you know, they'll think of those big assembly lines uh, putting together cars and trucks. But the industry is uh, is more diverse than that, right? Like you've got other smaller companies that make auto parts that supply the big assembly plants, and they must be impacted too. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. A, yeah. a lot of people probably don't realize that actually 85% of a vehicle today is built by a supplier. And it's just in the final assembly plants where a number of components arrive that are, you know, pre pre-assembled or sub-assembled as we, we call it. And then get uh, final assembled for the finished vehicle. And so when those assembly plants stop, it can shut down a Canadian auto parts supplier uh, that, you know, has nothing necessarily to do with with the ambassador bridge blockade but if a part that's coming from the u.s can't make it across the border it shuts down a canadian assembly plant that also has a canadian supplier the canadian supplier goes down as well and then those workers are laid off those workers have reduced income and so that yeah, the, this impact is quite significant, actually. Yeah, I mean, this this cannot be tolerated. This has got to be resolved and shut down some way or the other. Like, how quickly do you guys want this dealt with? I mean, you heard the, the, the Ontario Premier there declaring a state of emergency, talking very tough, outlining jail times and, and, and other penalties. But, you know, he's less clear about precisely when enforcement action would start. Like, do you guys... What do you guys want to see? Do you want this thing solved as soon as as quickly as possible? Like get going and, and take that bridge back. Yeah, what we're gonna what we're gonna be doing as a union is just monitoring the next twenty four hours. So the yeah. emergency measures were announced by the government. I, I still haven't reviewed all of them because I've been doing a lot of um, media today. And but we're gonna we're gonna see what those measures do in the next twenty four hours. We're, we're into the weekend now. Most of the assembly plants would probably not be running on a Sunday, for example. Uh, so there's a bit of a reprieve there. But it has to come to an end <laughs> very, very quickly. It should have came to an end al- already. Um, uh-huh. But again, we'll, we'll just keep, keep monitoring this because there's a heavy, a heavy price that workers are paying. Because do, you fear, do you fear... Like I, I think one of the reasons some of the politicians have been frozen, like I, I think Trudeau has looked like a bit of a deer in the headlights the last few days, not sure what to do. But I, I know some of these officials are, they're worried about escalation. They're worried about violence, right? Like if you, if you move in there, start arresting people, hauling trucks away, what is their response? Like, is that a concern for the union right now? Well, I think it's a concern for everybody uh, that 
this de-escalate in a peaceful way. Nobody wants to see violence uh, yeah. at any of these events, but I, I just don't know. I'm concerned. There's, I think everybody recognizes that some of these protests have a, have an extreme extremist right wing element uh, tied into them. Yeah. And that's a, that's concerning. Um, so I think maybe the governments are taking that into account as well. But uh, time is of the essence here. So I okay. think at some point something has to be done. All right. Welcome back to the show. Here we go now with one of the biggest drug busts in B.C. history. Police searched properties in Metro Vancouver and in Victoria, seizing weapons, cash and $30 million worth of deadly fentanyl. It comes after officials announced the highest death count ever for toxic drug overdoses in British Columbia. I've got the great Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Boland standing by for the inside story on this one. First, have a listen here to Victoria Police Chief Del Manic. This file started as a Victoria Police Department investigation with strike force identifying and targeting a criminal enterprise indiscriminately trafficking drugs for profit in our community. This operation successfully targeted the top of the fentanyl trafficking pyramid in British Columbia. This sends a strong message that police agencies are united across this province. We have a shared vision and every day we'll continue to do important work in making an impact against those targeting the most vulnerable people in our communities. Okay, as Victoria Police Chief there talking about this major fentanyl bust here in a police operation called Operation Juliet. Let's check in now with Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Bolin. And I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hey, Kim, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Kim, this is a big one. I mean, you've covered a lot of these big busts over the years. Where does this one rank? 30 million bucks worth of fentanyl. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, oh, it certainly is. It's certainly one of the biggest. Uh, we learned about it in December of 2020 uh, because that's when the search warrants were executed and there was an announcement by Vic Police and uh, Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit at the time so we had a hint of what was to come, uh, but these arrests, uh, you know, have now been made. People are facing charges. Uh, we also, again, got a glimpse into the file through some civil forfeiture cases that were filed in late 2020 that sort of laid out the scope of this. Uh, there were names in that. So we learned a little bit about the people involved, but without a doubt, this is huge. Okay, you got three men have been charged here. They face a total of 22 firearms and drug trafficking charges here. Let's talk about who the people are who are charged and arrested here. What can you say about them, Kim? Well, we know they're an organized crime group. We don't know their specific affiliation, if they have one, to sort of the gang landscape in B.C. Quite frankly, they're probably too high up to be repping some kind of logo or tattoo of a mid-level gang. Uh, one fellow charged named Byron Bala, he's a former Calgary gangster. In Calgary, he was with the Fresh Off the Boat gang, known as the Fob gang, and he was charged in a conspiracy to commit murder, but acquitted a couple of years ago. He's got convictions for firearms and drug trafficking that date back to 2011. Uh, the fellow Brent Van Booskirk, who's also charged is particularly interesting. He's a convicted killer who was on parole when he was arrested in this case. And wow. he did uh he did a gang hit several years ago. He was 
uh, under 18 at the time, and he was also part of two other conspiracies to commit murder. He was captured on wiretap, boasting about being the youngest hitman in Canada. Oh my goodness! Wow, that's incredible. Like a lot of uh, that really jumped out at me in your reporting. That here you have a guy who's got a uh, a murder rap on parole. Is that because it was a young offender case? Is that why he was out? Yeah, that's why he's out. He yeah. wasn't as an adult, which is why we can use his name. And he was an adult in the two murder conspiracy cases, right? The, those um, investigations began when he was 18. Now, the third man, Vu Win of Surrey, we don't know a lot about him. He doesn't have criminal convictions that I could find in any BC court record. Uh, but clearly, he's one of the big fish in this based on all, all yeah. the information that's come out so far. Speaking to Vancouver Sun crime reporter about this $30 million fentanyl bust. And Kim, you mentioned that these are the type of the people who have been charged here are not the type maybe who would be street level dealers wearing gang colors. And you heard that reflected in the comments that we played there from the Victoria police chief. He said this goes right to the top of the fentanyl pyramid in British Columbia. Is that is that corresponding to your understanding? These are high level people. Very high level, and they would be in contact with international gang connections, you know, to get their product into the country, because this is a huge amount. Uh, Interestingly, we had another large fentanyl bust in Maple Ridge yesterday, so uh, not quite as big as this, but a very, very large one. So it's good to see law enforcement agencies going after the higher-ups, because most of the fentanyl cases you see in court are street level or maybe slightly above street level dial-a-dope line operators. Yeah. Yeah. How about the firearms that were seized here? What kind of weapons were, did police seize here? Well, they seized 20 firearms. Some of them were uh, fully automatic and some of them were modified to make them fully automatic. So, <clears throat> you know, police were very happy to get those off the street. Certainly we've seen uh, gang violence uh, tick up in the last little while, and it's really concerning to everyone. Uh, so the more firearms that are seized, the better and safer the communities are. Okay, this was a, it was interesting to see uh, an investigation like this over different police agencies. You, you had the Combined Forces Union, Unit in Metro Vancouver and then the Victoria Police involved as well. So is that unusual to see that kind of... Um, cooperation there among different forces and different units? No, I don't think it's uh, unusual at all, especially with some of the bigger investigations, whether they're murder conspiracy cases or something like this, a massive drug investigation. I mean, Victoria police officers saw what was going on on the ground there in Victoria and began their own investigation. And, you know, they could have stopped by going after, you know, the people they were seeing conducting business on the streets just slightly above Instead, they contacted, you know, what is the province's anti-gang unit who there was immediately a connection made to um, producers or people, suppliers in, um, you know, on the lower mainland. So Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit got involved and they were able to sort of track things further along the food chain and get people at the higher level. Yeah, you mentioned some of the international connections, Kim, and we're, I'm going to be speaking to a guest on that aspect of it next. Uh, what can you say about that in terms of the the international connections when, of this type of like high level drug trafficking and drugs coming into Canada and into British Columbia? Well, I think a lot of people I've spoken to over the years will say one of the reasons why Vancouver has become such a hub, you know, is because we are a port city. 
Uh, we're also a very multicultural city. We have uh, people living here, Canadians, who have connections all over the world, and sometimes those connections are used in a more nefarious way to get drugs into the country. Uh, so, you know, there's a multitude of factors, but we definitely are um, a transshipment point for the international drug trade, and we're also, you know, the receiving end um, of international shipments that are going to be, you know, produced locally um, or processed locally and shipped across the country as well as being sold here on the street. And when it comes to fentanyl, it just seems like fentanyl has been such a a game changer here in so many aspects. I mean, we've got record high toxic drug overdose death rates announced this week, more than 2,200 people last year in BC, the highest number ever six deaths a day from toxic drug overdoses seem to be surging, particularly at the end of the year. So we're probably looking at another very deadly year from toxic drug overdoses. And fentanyl in particular is cited as as one of the primary causes in the death rate. And it's such a powerful and highly concentrated uh, deadly drug that can be smuggled in small amounts and then used to make like million like literally millions of doses that can be sold on the street right exactly and it's you know that's why it's so deadly it's also just so much more profitable for these guys who are producing it and selling it you know because they don't need very much and it goes a long long way uh and interestingly you know the people that are working in the uh fentanyl labs here and we have fentanyl labs here in bc that are processing it for street use, you know, those workers are also at risk, right? Because they're touching this stuff. Uh, I was deadly right across the board. And, um, you know, I know several uh, cases in the last few years where people involved in producing and selling fentanyl have ended up ODing on it as well, right? So uh, the people producing it know what's going to happen. Right, And they're doing it anyway because the money is just so attractive to them. Kim, another great job in the story as usual. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me on. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about that huge drug bust in British Columbia, one of the biggest ones ever, $30 million in fentanyl in this case. Police also seizing cash and automatic weapons. Let's discuss now with my guest, Stephen Metelsky. He's an organized crime expert, professor at Mohawk College in Hamilton, Ontario. I recommend his book, Undercover, Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Stephen, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me back. Yeah, you bet, Stephen. In the previous segment there, we were talking about this huge fentanyl bust here, 30 million bucks worth of fentanyl, enough to make literally millions of street-level doses of this dangerous drug. Is that why this this particular drug is so attractive to to organized crime and to drug traffickers, that it is so uh, potent and toxic in, in such a small amount, so you can smuggle it easier? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mike. You know, just to give your listeners an idea to visualize, if you were holding uh, a Tic Tac mint in your hand and you crushed it, And the quantity of that powder just in one crushed Tic Tac could be 10 to 12 fatal doses if that hypothetically were fentanyl. So when you look at the seizure, you know, we're talking 10 kilograms, 4 million doses with, uh, you know, a pure concentration level of 88 to 90 percent. 
And that potentially could be, you know, thousands of overdose deaths due to this drug. Yeah, that's in- that's incredible. Where do these drugs come from? How do they get into the into the country and into BC? They are from all over the world. I know from uh, other investigative experience in my background, uh, Asia, Southeast Asia, um, a lot of organized crime groups have imported fentanyl uh, from these countries. And, you know, British Columbia, uh, when, when the drugs are coming into Canada, that is the first point, point of contact. Uh, BC is sort of that port where these extremely lethal street drugs are coming in. And they are Uh, You know, you're still seeing cocaine and other forms of contraband smuggled in. But fentanyl for organized crime, you know, when you compare a kilogram of fentanyl to a kilogram of cocaine, you know, these organized gangsters are getting more money. It's more lucrative. But the, the very deviant and devious side behind this, Mike, is all these gangsters know the lethal potential of fentanyl yet they are so consumed by greed and money that they are willing to overlook, you know, anybody dying accidentally from, you know, ingesting these drugs. And it's not just, you know, do you have fentanyl users that are using fentanyl directly? Absolutely. But fentanyl is being used as a cutting agent, Mike. So, you know, even uh, fraudulent pharmaceutical pills can be laced with fentanyl. Marijuana purchased, you know, in the underground black market, can be laced with fentanyl. All of these can be uh, and contain, you know, lethal overdose uh, quantities that unsuspecting users are ingesting. Yeah, for sure. And this uh, this bust and the details in this bust we're learning this week comes in the same week when we've just heard about a record year for toxic drug overdoses in British Columbia. More than 2,200 deaths last year in BC, an average of six a day. And the death rate seem to be surging here toward the end of the year. So we're probably looking at another very deadly year in BC from toxic drug overdoses. And, you know, we heard the police this week, Stephen, saying that this is a major drug and they, they're, they've, uh, or a major drug bust and they've got some big fish here that they've arrested. You heard a police describing it as the top of the pyramid for fentanyl drug trafficking in British Columbia. Is that, like, is that just the police, police sort of trying to put a, po- a real positive spin on a major bust, or, or is this just scratching the surface of how much fentanyl is coming into the country and into our province? Mike, it is a positive spin, but the reality behind this is it's that little tip of the iceberg, you know, yeah. sticking out of the ocean that we can see. What we don't see, and, and when I say we, like everybody collectively, is the vast amount of drugs and opioids being smuggled into Canada that are not being intercepted. Uh, You know, the drug trade is forever going to move on. It's just the reality. It's how much money and how much investigative, uh, you know, input that we are putting in to combat this. Because whether or not someone's at the top echelon of an organized criminal group, I always use the great great white shark tooth analogy, that when a great white shark attacks, Uh, It it typically loses a couple front teeth, but it automatically, those teeth at the front are filled in by teeth in the back row that replace those frontline teeth. And that is no different, Mike, to use that analogy with organized criminality. There's always somebody uh, willing to fill that void and that gap when somebody is apprehended and taken off the streets.
Hey, Stephen, we just have one minute left here. With so much money up for grabs and this particular drug being so concentrated, making it easier to smuggle, this is a major bust. There's no doubt about it. 30 million bucks, it's huge, one of the biggest ever. But does it just can keep getting worse? Like, how do you how do you see the future unfolding here? Well, you know, the one trend, there's, uh, sadly and tragically, there's another street drug. I hope it doesn't become as saturated as fentanyl. It's called carfentanil. And it's yeah. actually 100 times, 100 times more lethal than fentanyl. You know, we're talking about fentanyl on its own is incredibly deadly in, you know, just a few grains of salt. You know, this the next level is, you know, organized criminals are looking for more efficient ways to secrete and import uh, these deadly narcotics onto Canadian streets and American streets for, you know, at the risk of all these deaths. Stephen, it's always great to have you on. Thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike.